Uh, well, good morning, church. How are you this morning? I am so thankful that you are here. Uh, if you don't know who I am, there's a reason for that, because I'm not normally here. Uh, my name is Matt Darby. I have the privilege of serving as our teaching and campus pastor for our Gilmer campus. So I bring you greetings from the north. And uh, to tell you, I am uh, so excited to be here this morning and to be opening God's word with you. If you're a guest with us, uh, I just want to reiterate what Pastor Daniel said. Thank you for being here. We really do think of it as an honor that you would worship with us today, and hopefully you'll grab one of those gifts on your way out that we have for you so that we can connect with you. And I just want to tell you I'm honored that I have the privilege. I want to thank Pastor Todd, our lead pastor, for letting me do this. Pastor, thank you for the opportunity to share. And uh, I think God is... Uh, has a word for us today. I hope that you and your family had an amazing Thanksgiving uh, by show of hands through confession and repentance. Who, who overdid it on Thursday? Just a skosh, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you had to go to that next belt, that next notch, didn't you, on your belt? I did. Uh, unless you wore your maternity pants, that you, you know what I mean? Then you could just kind of do what you needed to do and take. <laughs> All right, so. Um, we, we had a great Thanksgiving on Thursday. I tried something this year that I had never tried before, and I tried to smoke a turkey. Now, I've never smoked anything. I've never smoked uh, uh, meat. I've never smoked cigarettes, even the little funny ones. I've never smoked anything, church. And so we tried to smoke a turkey this year, and it turned out okay. It was, it was good, not great. Uh, the awkward part was one of my sons decided to, to name the turkey, and they gave it a name. And I believe we named it Antonio, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I don't know why he named the bird, but as I prepared the bird, he called it Antonio. And as it smoked, we called it Antonio. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever tried to eat an animal that you named? That's awkward. That'll, make you, that'll mess you up. It takes all the joy out of it, right? And now I went ahead and ate it because I'm not a quitter, Pastor. I don't quit, you know what I mean? I went ahead and powered through. Um, but our family has a, a great little tradition that we do. I bet, I bet you and your family do as well for Thanksgiving. Um, right before we eat, wherever we've gathered, whether it's at whatever relative's house we, where we are, or this year we were at my sister's house, we gather as a family, all of us together, and we pray before we eat the Thanksgiving meal. We'll stand there, we'll either hold hands, arms around one another, but we stand close to one another and we pray. Anybody have a similar tradition? Your family gathers, big family. Now there's nothing unique about the fact that we pray. What's unique in that moment is that we're all together praying. And for us, that only happens once or twice a year. In all of my life, growing up as a kid, that moment has always been very special to me. That moment of my family uh, extended and close all together has been very special. And I will tell you, there's been years where um, everything was just going great, where, uh, you know, that, that prayer was one of celebration and rejoicing. There were those years where um, our families were doing well, everybody had a job, nobody was sick, kids weren't struggling with sin, you know, like some of y'all got perfect kids. We've had those seasons where our kids were perfect, and nobody was struggling, and nobody uh, had any real issues, there was no strife in the family, and on those years, that prayer was celebration, it was rejoicing, and it was gladness. And then there were years where um, we were struggling some, where we did have uh, relatives who had lost a job or had just gotten a, a diagnosis or there was strife in the family or maybe we were having that gathering and there was someone missing uh, because they had, had gone on. And uh, I, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And in those years, I remember those prayers feeling more like a 
like a cry for help and for mercy and for, for the nearness of God because we, we just felt that need. And, and I want to tell you, though, whatever circumstance that we were in, we prayed. And I don't know where you are this morning. You may be having a absolutely stellar year. 2020 may just be the best year of your life. If so, get out. We're all sick of you. I'm tired of it. I don't even want to look at you. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> because for the rest of us, 2020, I don't know if you guys have noticed, it's been kind of a weird year. It's been a bit of a struggle, right? And, um, but wherever we are this morning, as we navigate into this holiday season, I want us to lean in to this idea of prayer. I want us to lean in and kind of come under the banner of knowing that God has a word for us and that as we draw near to him, he draws near to us and he meets us where we are. And I want us to look at this idea of prayer. Here's why. Because I think that we tend to be able to verbalize that we understand prayer, right? We can talk about prayer. We, we love to say things like praying for you, you know, hashtag praying, praying hands. Who, who sent praying hands this week? I got seven or eight of them. I, who, has, who, who has a habit of sending praying hands? It's okay. I'm only going to make fun of you publicly. It's no big deal, right? Please don't send me any more praying hands, all right? It makes me want to punt my phone into the street. You know what I'm saying? We, we have a tendency to be able to verbalize that we know about prayer, but when you get just beneath that, when you get just behind the curtain of that, when you see the place of priority that prayer has in our life, and when you see the outworking of prayer, the fruit, when you try to find the fruit of prayer in our life, here's what you understand. Prayer is something we really struggle to understand, and even more, we struggle to value it the way we should and make it a vital part of our walk with Christ and our relationship with him. Now, we love the idea of prayer, right? We see the champions of faith who prayed and God moved. We love hearing the stories of, of people that we know who have um, this amazing prayer life and God seems to move in power when they pray. And we always have this question, how do I pray like that? Because if we're honest, most of us probably have never sensed that kind of power in our prayer. Never sensed that kind of divine presence when we, when we pray that way. And we've always wondered, how, what, what's different about that? How is that not something I'm experiencing? And I think there's several reasons why we struggle with this. I think there's a couple reasons why we struggle with this idea of prayer. Part of it is I think we struggle with knowing what to say and how to say it. Can anybody just acknowledge that that's a real struggle? Can we just be honest? We're not super Christians, all right? Let's be honest. We struggle with knowing what to say and how to say it. We have built this thing up that we have to speak and, and pray in a certain spiritual quality or God's not interested in hearing our prayers. Some of you are from East Texas like me, but you pray in the King James. Come on. You wanna know why? Because you think it's gotta have some kind of spiritual quality or God's not gonna hear it. So we struggle to know what to say and to know how to say it. I think one of the other things that we struggle with is that we struggle with um, being able to pray what we're really feeling because even though what we're really feeling is honest, it doesn't feel safe to say out loud to God. Anybody on that bus with me? Doesn't feel safe to say that out loud. 
And so what's behind these issues, what's behind these struggles is the question, how do I pray? How do I pray? I know God's word commands me to pray. I see it cover to cover. Pray earnestly, pray steadfastly, pray continuously, pray in the spirit, pray, pray in community, pray in private, pray believing, pray in faith. I see that in God's word. How do I do this? How do I pray like that? And I think God's word answers that for us in, a, in two places. I think there are two basic answers to the question, how do I pray in God's word? The first one is the Lord's prayer. You guys are very familiar with that. Uh, in, in Matthew and in Luke, Jesus teaches, it's a teaching moment, right? Jesus to teach, teaches his disciples how to pray. And it, it's a question that was born out of the Pharisees praying in public and praying the wrong way. And Jesus going, hey, fellas, don't be like that. Well, Jesus, how then do we pray? And so he teaches them how to pray. The other answer that God's word gives us to the question, how do I pray, is essentially the book of Psalms. Here's why. Because the book of Psalms is a book of prayers. The entire thing is a book of prayers, very honest prayers. And this is where I want us to spend our time this morning trying to answer this question, how do I pray? The Psalms are a powerful resource for our prayer life because what we find there are the words that God has given us to pray back to him. Now think about that for a moment. What we have in the Psalms are the words that God has given, the very words of God given to us that we can then use to pray back to him. What a gift. And when you consider the scope of those words, what you find is that the Psalms cover virtually every human emotion. From the height of praise to the depths of despair, Psalm 150, David said, let everything that has breath do what? Praise the Lord. So we're on one end. And then in Psalm 88, he says, my soul has gone down to the pit. I'm like a dead man lying in the grave. Look at the swing right there. And everything in between, joy, happiness, Repentance, anger, frustration, envy, grief, heartache, peace, pain, it's all right there in the Psalms. And so this morning, what I'm hoping that we will do together is begin to build a foundation for a thriving prayer life. Now, what do I mean by a thriving prayer life? I believe a th thriving prayer life is a prayer life that has a regular rhythm. It is a rhythm of intimacy with God through the power of the Holy Spirit that makes you more like Jesus. That's what I, th when I say thriving prayer life, I mean a rhythm of intimacy with God through the power of his Holy Spirit that is making you more and more and more like Jesus. That's what I hope that we will find this morning. And we're gonna kind of navigate through several different Psalms to, to lay these foundations. Ultimately, we'll end up in Psalm 73 here in just a few moments. But there are four foundations, I think, that we can lay for the thriving prayer life. And here's my prayer for you. Here's what I've asked God for in anticipation of this morning. I've asked God that through this morning, we would gain 
as his people a renewed purpose in our prayer life. I've asked him for that. I've asked him that we would gain a renewed priority for prayer in our walk with Christ. And I have asked him that we would gain a new power and joy in our prayer. Is that something you want? Purpose and priority and power and joy in your prayer. I think if we, as we lay these foundations this morning, God can begin to do that in us. So the first foundation then for a thriving prayer life that I want you to have is this. Prayer is communion, not a one-way conversation. Prayer is communion, not a one-way conversation, which means what? Prayer is both speaking and listening. Now, how many of you have been in conversation with a person who they thought they were in a conversation, but they were doing all the talking? How many of you guys, when you look at your wives in public, it gets awkward. Okay, stop it. But seriously, how many of you have been in that kind of conversation, right? Where you, they're doing all the talking. Well, sometimes we take that approach to prayer, right? We take this approach where we think it is all speaking, and no listening, but communion, fellowship, is conversation. It's intimacy. It's, it's intimacy. It's relationship. It's both speaking and listening. David says this over and over. David says it in Psalm uh, 138, verse 3. He says, on the day I called, you answered me. In Psalm 91, uh, verse 15, God says of David, when he calls to me, I will answer him. He says again in Psalm 3, verse 4, David said, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. And then look at Psalm 116, verse 1 and 2. I love this one. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. David is saying, what inspires me to pray all of my life for as long as I will live is remembering that God is listening, that he hears my prayers and that he will answer. Prayer is communion with God. But here's the struggle that we have. We often treat prayer like we're leaving God a voicemail. Anybody? Right? Have you ever caught yourself in the middle of a voicemail to realize you've left a five-minute voicemail for somebody because you forgot you weren't actually talking to them. By the way, I only listen to, I listen to voicemails based on how long that little counter says they are. If you're over a minute, I'm not listening. I'm not gonna take time to do that, right? So we, but we treat prayer like we're leaving, leaving God a voicemail, leaving this list of needs and wants. John Piper said this, he said, it is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Come on. I, I'm just gonna be honest and tell you there have been times and I still have to war to make sure my prayer life is not just a call upstairs to make my life more comfortable where I wanna stay. It's, it's, it's communion. It's fellowship with God. It's not leaving God a voicemail. You know what else it's not? And I have a tendency to do this too. Um, it's also not just an emergency road flare, right? Anybody ever had to fire a road flare, like at one of those flares? Anybody got to fire a flare gun? That just sounds awesome. I've never got to do it. But sometimes we treat it like that, right? So all of our best laid plans, all of our efforts have fallen apart. We've got no other options except to shoot the flare up and hope God 
will save us. But it's, it's not a voicemail and it's not just an emergency road flare. Prayer is intimacy, it's relationship, it's nearness, which means not only am I speaking, but I am listening. It is communion, not a one-way conversation. Yeah, it's the first kind of foundation. Here's another one. God's word is our prayer language. God's word is our prayer language. If the Psalms are essentially a book of prayers, and I believe they are, then here's what I find awesome. On the first page of this book of prayers, in the first chapter, there's 150 chapters of prayers, and in the first page, on the first chapter, in the first two verses of this book of prayers, do you know what we find? We find a call to meditate on the word of God. Right there in verse one and two. Psalm chapter one, verse one and two says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is where? Say it with me, in the law of the Lord. And on that law, what does he do? He, day and night, he meditates. Right here at the beginning of the book of prayer is a call to meditate on God's word. Who would just acknowledge with me there are times when I don't know how or what to pray? How do I, what, what do I pray when I'm in that moment? You pray God's word. Well, how do I get to a place where I can pray God's word? I have to meditate on it, spend time with it, prioritize it, open it. Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor and an author, he said, um, I love this. He said, what is essential to the power of prayer is to realize the first word of prayer is always God's word. Man, I love that. How do I infuse power into my prayer life? You make the first word of prayer God's word. God's word gives us the prayer language, the Psalms are filled with language that you can use to pray back to God. So it's communion. It's not a one-way conversation. God's word is our prayer language. Here's the third foundation that I want you to see, and it's this. Prayer must be our first position, not our last resort. And we need to get this one. Prayer must be our first position, not our last Resort. I have treated it as a last resort before when all my plans have failed, right? When I'm standing in the middle of the consequences of my nonsense, then I've used prayer as the last resort. But I want you to listen to what David says in Psalm 88. I told you earlier in Psalm, remember in Psalm 150, it's uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But in Psalm 88, he said, I'm like a dead man lying in the pit. Also in Psalm 88, listen to what David says in verse 13. After that cry of being in the pit, he says, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. David recognized the priority of starting his day with prayer. Jesus did this, didn't he? In Mark chapter one, we see it and throughout the gospels, what did Jesus do? It says he would rise early while it was still dark. He would go out away from his disciples and away from people and he would pray. Now listen, the point isn't just praying in the morning, the point is this. If we want to see the power of God engaged in our life, the point is that we would engage with God before we engage with anything else. That's the point. 
We would engage with the power and the presence of God before we engage with anyone or anything else. Because in engaging with the presence of God, I am empowered and given perspective to see everything else in my world the way he sees it. When you engage with God's presence, when you step into this first position prayer, when prayer is your first position, do you know what you're given? Divine perspective. Divine perspective. What is that? What is divine perspective? Divine perspective is the ability to see every obstacle in my life through the lens of God's sovereignty. Divine perspective is, is being able to see every obstacle in my life through the lens of God's sovereign. Do you believe God is sovereign over this world? He's sovereign over this world. Well, how do I gain a perspective that allows me to see every obstacle and every hardship and every struggle that I'm gonna face with that lens on? Because I tend to see it through my lens. And when I do, every obstacle looks insurmountable. Every obstacle looks bigger than it is. Every obstacle feels like a personal attack when it's not. But it's in it's in that first position prayer. It's when I engage God before I engage the obstacle that the obstacle gets put in its place and I get on the lenses of God's sovereignty. That's divine perspective. And that's what we get in first position prayer, which means what? Before you leave your house, engage with God, pray. Before you go into your office and into your, your school classroom, we pray before we engage in the hard conversation with the friend, we pray. Before we go into that tough meeting at work, we pray. Before we send that text, we pray. Before we post that comment, we pray. Hello. <laughs> some of y'all, some of y'all's comments, come on. Come on now, right? How many of you have ever read a comment and thought, he should have prayed over all of that before he has sinned because... <laughs> That is there forever. <laughs> it ain't going anywhere. There's a thousand people screenshotting that right now. It's just gonna live forever. First position prayer. It's our first position, not our last resort. I dare you to try it. I dare you to try it and see if God doesn't give you divine perspective to see that he is sovereign over what you're about to walk through in your day. It's our first position. So it's communion. It's not a one-way conversation. God's word gives us the language to speak. It's our first position, not our last resort. And here's the last foundation that I want us to have. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. Prayer is honest, and it doesn't shy away from the hard things. It's honest. And it does not shy away from the hard things. Listen, this is critical. This is critical for the life of the believer. This is critical, church, for us to be able to maintain our joy as we navigate this life to maintain our faith and our believing and our gladness as we, as we navigate this life. 
It's important that we get this. One of the things I treasure about the Psalms is the raw honesty that we see there. There are some very vulnerable, uh, uh, very emotional prayers here that deal with very hard things, things that you and I deal with every day. Ellen Davis wrote a book called Getting Involved with God. I want you to hear how she describes the Psalms and how they can help us model our prayers and be honest in our prayers. Listen, listen to what she says. She says, the Psalms model ways of talking to God that are honest yet not obvious. At least they're not obvious to modern Christians. They may guide our first steps toward deeper involvement with God because the Psalms give us a new possibility for prayer. And what is that? They invite full disclosure. They enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing us. The point of the shocking Psalms is not to sanctify what is shameful like the desire for revenge, or to make us feel better about parts of ourselves that stand in need of change. Rather, the Psalms teach us that profound change happens in the presence of God. Over and over, they attest to the reality that when we open our minds and our hearts fully to God who made them, then we open ourselves, whether we know it or not, to the possibility of being transformed beyond our imagining. Being able to be honest in your prayer, to not shy away from the hard things. That is a struggle. But the, if we model our prayer life from the Psalms, our model, that template, that framework that we would follow leads us right into honest prayers, navigating through difficult things. And so what I want us to do is I want us to jump in and see the very honest prayer of a man named Asaph. And that's in Psalm 73. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It'll obviously be uh, on the screen behind me. Let me tell you a little bit about Asaph. Asaph was a worship leader. Um, he had been appointed by David, chosen and set apart uh, to lead worship and to minister before the Ark of the Covenant. He was a very important person. This was David's worship leader. Uh, matter of fact, Asaph wrote 12 different Psalms. He wrote Psalm 73 through 83. Why do I tell you, tell you that? This was the worship leader of his day. That's who Asaph was. He was the guy. And we have a tendency to think that the worship leaders and the pastors and the ministers don't really have to battle for their faith and struggle with their sin and war for their believing. But I want to tell you, that's not true. I think sometimes y'all think maybe our lives are one long worship song, but it's not. It's not. We have to war for our faith like you. We have to battle for our believing. We have to war for our purity and our integrity. And what I want us to look at in Psalm 73 is a very honest prayer from a struggling minister. I think we're gonna kind of journey with Asaph through this prayer and we're gonna find some things that if we take hold of, they're gonna transform us. Read with me, starting in Psalm 73, verse one. Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a good start. That sounds good, doesn't it? No, it's all warm, fuzzy. That's the way we start ours. Verse two, 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he's supposed to start peeling that onion of honesty. He's about to start revealing what's really going on inside. For they have no pangs until death, talking about the arrogant and the wicked. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Why does he have to say fat jokes like right here in the Bible? That don't feel right. right. Fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Now, I don't know 100% what tongue strutting through the earth means, but I can tell you, I think I know some people who have strutting tongues. Anybody know a guy, know, know somebody? I don't know. I think I would have to see it, but I know it when I see it, right? Their tongues strut. God, keep me from a strutting tongue. Whatever that means, I don't want it. Verse 10, therefore, his people, God's people, turn back to them. They turn back to the wicked and the arrogant. And they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought, to how, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, everybody say until, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's an honest prayer, isn't it? <laughs> That's real. There are some things I think we see Asaph navigate through that if we grab a hold of, it positions us to be honest, to not shy away from the hard things. Very practical steps that Asaph took and pray this prayer. Here's the first thing he did. He admitted his struggle. He admitted his struggle. Look again at verse one through three. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right away, we see this honest confession of envy and confusion at how God seems to allow blessing and prosperity to fall on the wicked. Now, this isn't a sermon about envy and self-pity, but I got to say something just real quick. 
the longer you sit in envy, the longer you sit in self-pity, the more warped and distorted your view becomes of God's goodness. The longer you sit in self-pity, you will begin to talk yourself into grievance. Anybody? Is that just the truth for me today? That's fine. The longer you sit in envy and self-pity, you will just continually talk yourself into grievance because it distorts and warps your perception of God's goodness. Here's why. Not because you are looking too much at the world, but because you are looking too little at God. Asaph admitted his struggle with envy. This man was envious of wicked people. He could not understand how they seemed to thrive and he barely survived. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? Listen to how he describes the wicked. He says they prosper They are successful and healthy. Their lives are easy and carefree. They are prideful and arrogant and greedy. They use others to get ahead. They have it all. They deny God and still have everything. What's the point? Asaph admits his struggle and we can admit our struggle. Too often we think we have to filter that out of our prayer. I can't really say that to God. Can I tell you something? Hiding that struggle is only fooling one person. It's only fooling one person. Asaph, he just puts this before God. So why admit the struggle? Because church, you will never, you will never be free of a struggle you cannot acknowledge. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but you will never be free of a struggle you cannot acknowledge is real. Some of you have been stuck in this cyclical, cancerous, life-stealing, joy-robbing loop of struggle, of envy, of self-pity, of sin, of anger, of fear, of anxiety and worry, and because you refuse to say it out loud to God and put it, you can't find your way out of the loop. How do you get out? You admit it. You put it in front of God. He already knows. Admit your struggle. This is what, this is what Asaph does. And did you know Jesus has already invited you to come in and admit it? In Matthew 11, he says, come to me. Come on, all who are weak and heavy laden, all who are struggling, come and take my yoke upon you and take, give me that burden because I'm gonna give you rest. I want your struggle. I want your fear. I want that anxiety. I want that sin that you can't beat. I want it because I wanna give you victory. You'll never find freedom until you acknowledge it. So we admit Asaph said it. That's the first thing I see here to teach me how to be honest in my prayer. Here's the other thing he did. Confessed his doubt. He confessed his doubt. Look at verse 13 through 15. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph puts all of his doubt on the table. Right? He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He said, this man literally said he feels like his obedience to God has been vanity and emptiness. He's essentially saying is the purity with which I have lived my life and the obedience with which I have lived my life even worth it if this is what I get and that's what they get. No, I don't care who you are. That is a scandalous prayer. But he confesses that doubt. He doesn't hide it. And we have felt that way. Haven't we? Have you ever looked around and thought, you know what? I'm trying to live for Jesus. I'm trying to walk in, in integrity and purity. I, I'm trying to make moral decisions. I read my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm praying. I even tithe and I've been on mission. I'm trying to do the right things and I still got passed over for the job. I still got laid off. My kids are still walking in rebellion against me and against God, and I don't know how to help them. I still got a phone call this week that says I'm gonna die with the disease I was just told I had. We've all been there. When we admit our struggle, when we confess our doubt, you know what happens? We increase our intimacy with God. Some of you feel far from God, and it is because you haven't said out loud what's really going in your what's really going on in your heart. I want to tell you, church, that your deepest your deepest intimacy with the Father is just behind your honest confession. Are you with me? Your deepest intimacy and connection with the Father is tucked in just behind admitting that you are struggling and confessing your doubt. Because in doing that, it increases your intimacy. Here's why we struggle. Because when we admit that to one another, when I tell you the truth about what's going on in my heart towards you, most of the time, it'll break a relationship. Because we can't handle it. And so we, we take that same approach in our prayers with God. But I am telling you, as you do this, as you set this rhythm of being honest, not shying away from the hard things, admitting when you're struggling, confessing your doubt, saying things like, I believe, but help my unbelief. You're gonna find God meets you there and it actually increases your intimacy. It deepens your believing. It draws you near to God. And the nearer you get to God, the more you get the divine perspective because you just keep coming under the banner of God's sovereignty and his love and his shepherding of your heart. And he begins to restore your soul in that confession and restore you in that admitting that you're struggling. David knew this, which is why he said in Psalm chapter 1, 
that he's gonna restore. It's why he said in Psalm 23, he restores my soul. It's why he said in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. How do I do that? It's an honest prayer. You don't have to filter it out. Intimacy with God is waiting for you there. Here's the last thing that I think we see in this prayer of Asaph that helps us pray honest. Asaph got into God's presence. He didn't stay where he was. He got, he got into God's presence. Look at what it says in verse 16 and 17. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, when I tried to figure out how the wicked were just killing it, and I was being killed by it, when I tried to figure all that out, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then, and only then, did I discern their end. Asaph said, this was breaking me down. It was destroying me until I got into God's presence. And when Asaph got into God's presence, he attained the, or he was given that eternal perspective. He had vision. He had discernment. He was given insight, not only into what was going on with the people around him, but into his own heart. What we see in verse 18 and 19 and 20 is God reminds him that the wicked aren't going to get away with it that God's gonna deal with them justly and righteously. But more important than that, what we see in verse 21 and 22 is that God begins to reveal and draw out the sin in Asaph's life. Something tells me that when Asaph began to say things like, I was senseless and arrogant, I was like a beast before you, he was hearing an echo from his pastor, David, who he had probably heard pray a prayer like this, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what he did when he got in there into the presence of God, God started to pull that stuff out of him. When was the last time God began to just pull sin out of your life to set you free from it, to give you freedom over it? Asaph got into God's presence and in getting into God's presence, not only did he remember how God was gonna deal with the wicked, not only was his sin revealed and he was able to repent and deal and find freedom, but he also remembered, he was reminded that God was always with him and that God was his strength. Look at verse 23 through 26. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. How can that be there? How can that be there after Asaph has just said all that stuff? God, I don't trust you. My, the way I'm living, I don't believe that it's even working. I'm frustrated. How can it be that God would still hold my right hand? Here it is. Because when I admit it, the intimacy increases. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, do you remember what Asaph wanted when this prayer began? What did he want? He wanted the life of the wicked. He wanted the prosperity of the wicked. He wanted the life of ease and comfort and help. That's what he wanted. And by the end of the prayer, having been in God's presence, do you know what he said? I don't have anybody but you, and I don't desire anyone but you because you're the strength of my heart and you're my portion. He transitioned from give me what they got to give me Jesus. Why? Divine perspective. Divine perspective. When he started this prayer and he was in this loop of envy and self-pity, the pronoun he used over and over again was they. They have everything. They are healthy. They are prospering. They are doing awesome. Look at what they have. And then he was, when he was really wallowing in his own self-pity, it was I. The, the way I live is vanity. My obedience, I, I feel bad. I feel ripped off. I feel like God's unfair. But when he got into God's presence and God began to turn his heart to where it needed to be, you know what pronoun he used? You. You are the strength of my life. You are my portion forever. You hold my right hand. You are continually with me. Some of us this morning, we gotta start using different pronouns because we're living our life with a bunch of they and I, and it's time to start living our life with you. You, Lord, are my portion forever. What if God never explains why you're in the season you're in? Is Jesus enough to still walk you through it and be sovereign? What if he never delivers you out of that illness? Is he enough to navigate you through it? What if you never know why this side of heaven is he enough? Asaph had to work to get there. He wasn't there. He had to work to get there. Believer, it is work to get there. <laughs> but every minute you spend investing in your honest intimacy with God is worth it. It's worth it. So how do we respond to this this morning? I think if you're like me, there's just, there's the confession that uh, in my prayer life, I'm leaving God voicemails and I'm not, I'm not being honest. I'm leaving him voicemails, but I'm not being honest. Some of you need to pray honestly for the first time in a long time, this morning, right now. Some of you in a minute, we're gonna have our ministers here and maybe you come and take one of them by the hand or maybe you just come and, and kneel at this altar or sit right where you are. Some of you need to say out loud, admit the struggle and confess the doubt that you have been caught in so that God can give you divine perspective, show you his sovereignty, draw out that sin, you can repent and you can find freedom. Can I just tell you something? God's not interested in your Instagram face. He's not, he doesn't care about our Facebook face, does he? He doesn't care about your Christmas card family. Please don't hear me say God doesn't care about your family. He cares about your family. 
He doesn't care about that persona that we put out to the world. You know what God wants? He wants that haggard, beat up face that's battling to believe, that's in the war for faith. He wants to see where those lines of worry and anxiety and doubt and fear are on our face. Have you let God see that? That's what he wants to do this morning. Maybe this morning your confession would be, um, I don't know this God. I've never made Jesus the Lord of my life. Can I tell you this intimacy that I'm talking about with him, this relationship that I've talked about this morning, God wants that with you. He has pursued you for that. He has given his son so that he could have that relationship with you. So how do we do it? We simply trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of the living God who came for the sins of man. We trust that he did what he said he did. He died on the cross for our sins, for that thing that separated us between us and, between us and God. And if we put our trust in that work of the cross, we can be restored back to God. Some of you need to do that today. So whether it is coming and, and receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time, or whether it is honestly praying for the first time. Our ministers are gonna be here and I'm gonna challenge you. Don't stay put. We're gonna stand up, we're gonna start singing and the first thing the enemy's gonna whisper is, you're fine, stay right there. Don't do that. If the Lord has spoken to your heart, if he's brought something up in you this morning, I'm just challenging you to come to the altar and, and put it here and put it before him. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna worship and respond. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing us. God, for caring about our struggles and our doubts and our fears. And God, I pray that over the next few minutes, we would just have honest fellowship and communion with you, God. Holy Spirit, would you come and move in power? Would you give us the courage to obey? Would you transform us? We ask it in Jesus' great name, amen. Church, let's stand, let's worship, let's respond.